I'd like to welcome every back, everybody back to our class on 2 Kings. Uh, if you can't find any room in the back, just go ahead and move forward. Uh, standing room only is fine. Uh, but seriously, um, this has just been a, a real treat to go through this. And thank you for coming each week, and it encourages me. I want to say that as we... Uh, take a look at Kings. One of the reasons I wanted to do this was because when I went over to Israel and uh, we learned, you know, many of these places where the kings were, and I knew some of the kings, but I didn't know all of the kings in detail. And I said, I want to teach on the book of Kings and really get this down. And so it's been great. And I do remember some of the things that were said. And even though there's a lot of detail, I really feel like all of a sudden it's starting to connect. Uh, for instance, when we went over Isaiah's prophecy uh, at Christmas time in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it is in the context of this king right here. So it's just amazing how it's all starting to fit together, and uh, that's exactly what we want. And we're not even finished, so there's many more things that are going to connect. Anyway, so with that, this is uh, entitled Ahaz's Sin, Punishment, and Prophecy. And the prophecy is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Now, the one bad thing about that is I'm not going to be able to cover that tonight. Because that would have been four pages of notes. So we'll take our time and we'll cover Isaiah 7, 14 in this context next week. But I'm excited about that. All right, so let me just kind of go through the review again. This is a book that I, I have to re review for myself, uh, especially when we weren't here a week. Last week we had our vacation Bible school. But you remember we came to understand and came to know Pika. Uh, he's the king that's reigning right now in the northern kingdom. There's only one more king to go in the northern kingdom, and then the northern kingdom is done. But we've already seen some partial captivities, and we're going to still see some partial captivities going on. But anyway, what we learned last time was that Pekah killed Pekahiah. And there was this turnover of kings of the northern kingdom. Now, Pekah reigns for about 20 years. We saw that in 2 Kings 15. And that's pretty substantial because they, they were dropping like flies, like one month uh, reign of a king. We learn naturally that King Pekah of the northern kingdom did evil in the sight of the Lord, as the majority of them have, and of course the majority in the northern kingdom. And we also have Tiglath-Pileser III, who is now introduced, and he's the one that brought about a partial captivity. And again, what we said last time was, it's so hard to believe that they see these partial captivities and they don't stop sinning. They don't go back to following the Lord. And then what I said was, then when the Assyrians actually do take over the northern kingdom, take them into captivity, Judah, the southern kingdom, has 150 years or so where they're not in captivity and they could have learned the lesson, but they didn't. 
And in 586, they go. So 722, the northern kingdom goes into captivity. 586, the southern kingdom goes into captivity. Well, we then switch to the southern kingdom and really a breath of fresh air. Jotham takes over and he is a good king in the beginning and he's a good king in the end. Not that he's perfect, but he is good. He was Uzziah's son and Uzziah was also Azariah. He's the one that went into the temple to burn incense and had leprosy from then on. So Jotham co-reigned with him. And then when he came to power for soul uh, reign and regency, he reigned for 16 years. And a little bit of his time it was overlapped with Pekah. Um, so that is what we've seen. Uh, Jotham did right before the Lord, but he did not remove the high places. And the high places, again, are places where they typically worship false gods. And we're going to actually see some of that in this next section. But Jotham did have the right idea, and he had numerous building projects, but he began with the wall that was the entrance into the temple. And so we call that the Jotham principle. The Jotham principle is take care of spiritual things first. Even as Jesus said, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Well, I want to stop there for the review because I did say that we'll take a little closer look at the offal. And the, we're going to talk about the offal because that was another thing that he built. What is the offal? Where is the offal? Uh, we even got some pictures of that. But before we go any further, let's just bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the continuity of your word, the validation of your word with all that continuity, but the fact that you are the divine author of scripture and one event coincides with another because you're sovereign. Even the promise of Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 with I believe what is a double fulfillment, one in Ahaz's day and the ultimate in the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would you teach us now in the context that we have here, uh, warn us where we need to be warned, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the awful um, because I didn't have enough time last week, and I just thought that was very awful. I just thought that was awful that I didn't have enough time. Uh, that's, this is how you remember some of these names. All right, so what is the awful? Um, we had written last time that the situation, the location of the awful of Jerusalem is very definitely described in the scriptures. So it's not as though you, you go over to Israel and you have no idea. Scripture tells us where it's at and told the archaeologists where it was at. 
It was clearly revealed from the references of Nehemiah, who built the wall, uh, and then also 2 Chronicles 27, where Jotham fortified the Ophel. So that is a big scripture when you're thinking about the places and the situation of Jerusalem. And it was on the east hill south of the temple. So, uh, and I'm going to show you pictures here and a map and another explanation. But if you, if you see the temple north and then the city of David south, Ophel is in the middle of that. Okay? Now, a comment here by a fellow by the name of Galen Weimers. He uh, wrote a, a book and it's free on the internet, of both Jerusalem and a great description and pictures, and also of an Israel field guide. I, I, I had found these before I went to Israel, and I made sure I took those with. They're PDF form. You can download them, and it's really, really good. He's just, he's just a layman. Um, <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with a layman or just a layman. I'll tell you, that's a scholarly work here. And I, I for one, refer to it quite often. This is what he writes. The Ophel is part of the eastern hill that sits between the city of David and the Temple Mount. The word Ophel means, and this is important, swell or rise. So when we see this, you're going to go, yeah, perfect name for it. And refers to a higher part of the landscape. The Jebusites, they, they were the ones that originally had Jerusalem. They built their citadel there, as David did, who also added a lot more fortification to the northern part of his city. The Ophel is mentioned in Second Chronicles 27, 33, Jotham rebuilt the upper gate of the temple of the Lord and did extensive work on the wall at the hill of Ophel. So if you remember, we talked about that. Um, afterward, Manasseh rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David, west of the Gihon Spring in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate and encircling the hill of Ophel. He also made it much higher. So this came out of that work. All right, so what we want to take a look at, we mentioned Jotham's building projects, and this is important. And first he did the wall that was right there by the temple because that comes first, and, and so he really had his heart right. But then the Ophel, so here we have a map, and, and you may be, may, it may be difficult to see. I am going to zoom in. This was the diagram that we made years ago when we went through the book of Nehemiah. And, uh, of course, Nehemiah is the rebuilding of the wall, and it goes from piece to piece and detail to detail. And I had, we had studied this before I went over to Israel, and I was probably the most excited Gentile in Israel when I went over there to see Nehemiah's wall. So anyway, if... There, there's what they think was the wall and the city of David in the southern part and the temple area in the north about the time of Nehemiah and all the different gates. You can see the temple there at the very top, the north. And then I probably should have used another color. 
Um, I used red, and it's awful. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, so it, it says the word awful there, the rise, and we're going to see some pictures of it. I'll just zoom in so that's a little better. Uh, you can see it's on the east side. It's overlooking the Kidron Valley, which is a pretty steep uh, valley. And um, that this is where the opal is. And then here are some pictures of it. And I think a picture is worth a thousand words. So there is the opal. It's that little area before the wall. And it's a rise. So if you're walking, it's, you know, relatively level or flat or a slow incline until you get to the opal and then all of a sudden it's a major rise. Here's another picture of it and, and it's just that area that the arrow is pointing to and it's like well what are we going to call it? Well let's call it the rise or the swelling. That's, that's where this place is and that picture sort of shows it. There is a side view you can see it now. It's a, it's, a, it's a swelling there. By the way, all of Jerusalem is up on a hill. So when you're reading scripture and they're at a place that's north of Jerusalem, they're still going to say, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. Not because it's north, but because it's a higher elevation. And in that higher elevation is the Ophel. Okay, there's a close-up picture of it there. And this is what it looks like, and uh, we also believe that to the left of it was some of the, uh, the steps into the temple before they walled it in. Um, this, the temple steps are still there. Uh, I don't have a close-up, but I'm just going to whet your appetite. And you could say, you know, Jesus probably was all over Jerusalem, but we know that he was on the temple steps. And when you go there, you can see the temple steps. All right, so this is a picture that I took, and you, you can see the rise of it before it gets to the wall. Um, there on the Ophel Wall is a sign that calls it the Ophel Wall, and it's in both English and in Hebrew, and that's quite often there. Uh, uh, it says, the excavations were made possible by a generous gift from Daniel Mint and Meredith Berkman. So that's on this wall, so you pretty well know where the Ophel is. So anyway, I, I said I was, gonna, I said I was going to um, bring that out from last week because it is important. It's one of those things that everybody talks about, um, not only in Scripture, but when you go over there. And the archaeologists have unearthed this. Of course, it was unearthed anyway because it was on a rise, but they, they did get to some of the other uh, sections of it that were, were lower, and um, it was a great find. And every time something is found in archaeology, it's just one more confirmation to the world, because we already believe it, but to the world that the Bible is true. And all of this is true. In fact, the, you talk about a field guide for archaeologists over in Israel, it's the Bible. It's the Bible. So I wanted to go over Ophel. All right, with that, let's move on, and then I'm not tempted to do any of those dad jokes with the word Ophel. All right, so now I want to go back to 2 Kings 15, 37, and 38. We're going to 
uh, see the end of Jotham's life. We're going to learn a little bit about Jotham's enemies, and then we're going to simply see Jotham's death. Verse 37 says, In those days the Lord began to send Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. So we see them raising their uh, their strength. Now, Pekah, obviously, from our, our last week, and uh, last week we studied this, and from our review, is the king of the northern kingdom. So he's in cahoots with the king of Aram, and they're going against the southern kingdom. And this started about the time of Jotham, but it's really going to take effect with Jotham's son, Ahaz. Not Ahab, but Ahaz. And the author is just kind of letting us in a little bit about what's about to happen. And then, of course, in verse 38, it's going to talk about Jotham's death. But let me just read something here. A good article from Constable, as well as the Expositor's Bible Commentary. What, why is this happening? Um, uh, humanly speaking, and we'll talk about why it's happening divinely. But first of all, the Syro-Ephraimitic alliance, to which the writer referred briefly in verse 37, features significantly in 2 Kings chapter 16, all and, and also Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 17 including the great prophecy in verse 14. So it's all coming together. Judah's neighbors to the north and east were eager to secure Judah's help in combating the growing Assyrian threat. So as the Assyrians are getting bigger, these other countries wanted to fight against them because they didn't trust them. But here we find Ahaz kind of going in cahoots with Assyria, which will, in short order, destroy the northern kingdom and take them into captivity. Well, because Judah didn't side with these neighboring places in Israel, they turned against Judah, and they began to attack. So there's Aram and there's Pekah, and this is why they're together. Now, it also says, toward the end of Jotham's days, Political storm clouds began to appear on the international horizon. The chronicler speaks of all his wars, and this is in 2 Chronicles 27.7. And the author of Kings notes that Rezin, the Aramean king, and Pekah, Israel's king, began their incursions into Judah. The issue was designed by the Lord to test the young Ahaz in spiritual things. But there would be no repentance in this third generation. So, again, we talked about how hard it is for us to juggle many things at the same time. And usually, when we're talking about our responsibilities and we're trying to juggle them all, we're usually dropping one or the other. Or I remember uh, at one time or another thinking of the different responsibilities in different areas of your life and I felt like, gee, I'm behind the eight ball in one of them. One of them always gets neglected. 
Well, that's not the case with God. God is working all of this together. He's bringing, he's going to bring to the forefront Ahaz's sin, Ahaz's punishment, and the prophecy. And of course, the prophecy is for Ahaz initially, but ultimately it's for the Messiah and his virgin birth. So again, we're not going to get to get into Isaiah 7 this time. Lord willing, we will next week. But this is all that's happening. Then verse 28, and Jotham slept with his fathers and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Ahaz, the son, his son became king in his place. So here we see that Jotham, because he was good, good, good in the beginning and good in the end, he was certainly worthy to be buried with the other kings, uh, the southern kings that were good. And so we, we see that. And again, why? Well, he did right before the Lord. He had an extensive building project. And we see his heart when the first thing that he began to build was the wall that was leading into the entrance to the temple. The Jotham principle, as some call it, first take care of spiritual matters and the rest will fall in place. Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Well, now we bring in Ahaz. And we do believe that Jotham and Ahaz had a co-regency like most of the kings and their sons. And then what the scriptures are talking about when they talk about Ahaz is going to be his sole reign. He's going to reign solely for 16 years, which is going to be a pretty long time, but it's also during the reign of Pekah. So this political war that's going on with Rezin and Pekah, it's going to affect Ahaz. And the problem with Ahaz is he's going to be evil. He's not like his father at all. He does very, very much evil as we're going to look in Second Chronicles. So notice what it says in Second Kings chapter 16, verse 1. In the 17th year of Pekah. So Pekah is established now as the king. And if you remember in our, in our um, review, we see that he reigned for 20 years. So this is three years before his time is up. But we see now that this is when Ahaz becomes king. So let me go back up to a chart. I hope this is helpful for you. It's certainly helpful for me. All right, so here's the kings on the left of the southern kingdom and then the kings on the right and the northern kingdom. And obviously not all of them are mentioned because I didn't have enough on this chart, enough room on this chart. But we do see Jotham, 750 to 735. And then we see uh, Ahaz, 732 to 716. And he probably was in there with co-regency. We see Pekah, who uh, really came into his own at 752. And then at 740, he was the sole king. And so this is the 17th year now that Ahaz uh, is coming in to be a king. If you'll notice on the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom will end uh, with Hosea. He will be the last king before the captivity. 
But it's, there's going to be some chapters going on before that happens. Uh, the author is building up our suspense. Well, as we notice here, it says not only did he reign 16 years in Jerusalem, but he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God. And then here's the familiar phrase, as his father David had done. And that little phrase is what has really catapulted for me the study that we've been doing uh, on Sunday morning on David, a man after God's own heart. So we'll have this week, this Sunday, and then one more Sunday. And when I come back from vacation, we're going to study the book of 1 Timothy. So this is where we're at. But notice it says he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. And that almost is an understatement. But he did not do as his father, David, in, in the lineage, had done. Um, at this point, we want to uh, turn over in just a moment to Second Chronicles. And we're going to now see some of the details. First, or Second Kings just says he just did not do what was right. He may, mentions another thing. But Second Chronicles goes into detail. But if you remember, way back in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 8, and you don't have to turn there, but God was talking about his servant David. He said, who kept my commandments, that's number one, being a person after God's heart, who followed me with all his heart, number two, and then to do only that which was right in my sight, number three. That's a good description of what it means to be a person after God's own heart, and this is what David was. And we see this brought throughout the kings. Um, and Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. And here we have, of course, Ahaz, who did not do like David. Now, as we take a look here, let's go to verse 3. And what it's going to say is, first of all, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. And I want to stop there. I don't want you to read any further. <laughs> all eyes up here. Because we're going to come back to Second Kings of the horrific sins that Ahaz did in sacrificing children. But before we get there, it says he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. We're not talking about he walked in the ways of some of the bad kings from the southern kingdom. Now he's walking like the godless kings of the northern kingdom. That's a terrible, terrible epitaph. Now, at this point, because I know that you all did not read ahead, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 28. And a number of verses are almost verbatim. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. But it's the verses that are going to fill in what Ahaz was doing. So Second Chronicles 28.1, basically the same thing. Says he was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as David his father. And then verse 2, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, which is bad. And here's the first one, the first clue. He also made molten images for the Baals. 
So he now is making these images to false gods. That's what it means when it says he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And when it talks about the high places there, and it's going to say that he worshiped there, we're going to see that he's worshiping these false gods. And you just wonder how far they could digress. We're talking about the southern kingdom. But we see a decline when it comes to sin in culture. It's the exception rather than the rule. It's the exception to go forward and increase spiritually. It's always the rule to see it decline. Uh, We see that with some of the seminaries that were started as um, preparation for the gospel, and now they're just absolutely secular. What's so hard to take is the fact that we even see this with some churches. We see this with some good men who before... We knew them as stalwarts of Christianity. But as time goes on, uh, Satan, sin, and the desire for popularity as well as numbers comes in and influences and it goes downhill. And that's exactly what we see here with Ahaz. He made molten images for Baals. And by the way, um, you remember who started that, don't you? Solomon because of all of his various wives, made these images under these gods. So a lot of blame could be, could be put on the smartest guy in the room. Anyway, uh, we did talk about that. So he, he, made these, uh, he made these images unto the Baals. Now, the part that you didn't read from 2 Kings is going to be Um, explained here in a little bit more detail. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and burned his sons in fire. According to the abominations of the nations, specifically the Amorites, whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. Did, Did you catch that? So the Lord gave them the promised land and drove out these pagan nations, many of them, not all of them, because of Israel did not take advantage of, of the Lord's victory that he was giving them. And he put them out in their pagan ways. And this is one of the things that these pagans were doing, was they were sacrificing to the God of Melech. And the idea of Melech, he was the God of fire, the fire God, and he's also the God of sacrifice to children. So we're going to spend a moment or two taking a look at this in a little bit more detail. Now it says the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, so it's known as the Valley of Hinnom. And, and all that was said, all that was said in Second Kings, just because I know you didn't look, It says, and he even made his son pass through the fire according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. But this kind of goes into a little bit of detail and it tells us it's the valley of Hinnom. And I have some pictures of that. But before we do, I have to read 1 Kings 11, verse 7, about Solomon. So it's not that he just made any old image for his wives. He made the worst kind of images to the worst kind of gods. 
1 Kings 11, 7 said, Then Solomon built a high place, here it is, on the high places, for Kamash, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, this fire god, the one to whom they sacrificed the children. Solomon started that. I don't know whether he participated in it. I, and you, you, you almost want to say, well, gee, maybe he didn't know better. But he's the smartest guy in the room. He's the guy who was the wisest man up to that time. And, and he should have known. And it says, and for Melech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. So the Ammonites. Well, this is a detestable abomination, as you can imagine. And Jeremiah is one of the prophets that speaks about this. We went through the book of Jeremiah, and we remember going through this. So I'll ask you now to turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. And this is what I mean by, as we're going through the book of Kings, look at the continuity of Scripture. This Scripture is a cross-reference to that scripture, is a cross-reference to that prophecy, is a cross-reference to that judgment. It just all fits together. And I, I pray that we're, we're putting that together for ourselves by going through the book of Kings. So in Joshua, cha- I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 30, the Lord is speaking to Jeremiah, and then he will speak to the people. It says, for the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name to defile it. They have built the high places of Topheth, and this is the same area, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom or the Hinnom Valley, or you might recognize it as Gehenna, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. So this is interesting. We know that God is omniscient and he knows all things, but he's speaking here in human terms and said, it never crossed my mind to ever have you sacrifice your children to this other God or in any situation. And so then verse 32, he says, therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of the slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth because there is no other place. The dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. One of the things that's going to happen is Josiah, the very last, or not the last king, but one of the last kings, one of the last of the good kings of the southern kingdom is going to do what's right. He's going to be the one to come in and tear down all of these idols and all of these high places. And then he's going to rip up the bodies of these people that worship them 
and were buried, and they're going to bury him in the valley of Hinnom. So this is, this is what's going on here. Um, this is this deity that's spoken about several times in the Old Testament. There are numerous allusions to him and to this. And the most common phrase that we read is that they made their children to pass through the fire to Melech. Tradition tells us that there was a statue, a bronze statue of Melech made of brass, and the hands were so arranged that when they placed the infant or child into those hands, it slipped down into the belly of Melech where there was a raging fire and they were burned underneath. Just incredible. Well, let's take a look now at some of the pictures of the Valley of Hinnom. So once again, let's, let's look at where it is. And here's Nehemiah's wall. So it's on the western side. And it, it's on the western side where it's very, very steep. So it was a dump and a trash heap. And it was where they burned the trash. And this is where Jesus uses this to say, where the fire is never quenched and the worms never die because it was, a, it was a, a heap. But it was also where they think that this took place. Well, because the scripture says so. Um, kind of zoom in on it there. There's the, the Hinnom Valley. So I, I have to show this picture. It's a familiar picture I've, I've talked about before. So I finally learned how to take my first selfie. And my first selfie was with me in the Valley of Hinnom. <laughs> But, um, and it's hard to see a little bit. And, and every one of these pictures is from a different angle. Um, so I was taking of an angle. One of the good things, I suppose you say, is not, now it's made into a park. And there are trees growing up and there's grass there. And you can go and have a picnic there if, if you can stomach it. But, but anyway, uh, we got to see that. Um, here's a side view where you see the pitch of... Hinnom, and this is where they would just toss their trash, and this is where they also slaughtered Topheth, where they slaughtered these children. Now, I've never come across this other than from John MacArthur, and John MacArthur said that possibly Topheth means the sound of drums, and if that's true, the idea is there was a sound of drums going on constantly to wipe out and to deafen the cries of the infants and the children. And here we have a southern king doing this. This is, yes, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Here's an older picture. Um, The pitch is still the same. Um, and, and, And you're looking and you're seeing houses there. Now here the, the houses are more northwest of the actual uh, place where they were dumping them. Um, there, there's where it look, what it looks like today. So there are trees that are grown in there. And, and uh, they did find some archaeological stuff in there. Um, but anyway, uh, it, you can kind of see some of the trees and it's kind of like a park. 
And, and that's, uh, that's all we have there. This is what Ahaz was doing. And then it's going to go on to say, we look at verse 4. We're going back to 2 King, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles. I'm trying to keep it straight. 2 Chronicles 28. Let's go back there and notice what it says in verse 4. So verse 3 says that he was burning his sons in the fire to Melech, Ben-Hinnom. Verse 4, he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. This is, this is kind of putting it all together. So whenever they say the high places, this is where the pagans had their places of worship to their false gods, and it was always high. One of the reasons is you could see it from a distance. You could go there to worship. And what do you do there? Well, it was mostly to sacrifice and burn incense on these high places to these false gods. And it says on the hills. So uh, that's the idea of it. And it says under every green tree. So wherever there was a tree, a living tree, this is another place where they would sacrifice. Of course, several of the deities look like trees. But this is, this, this is what Ahaz has done. And it's almost as if he's surpassed Ahab at this point. So we see that at verse 4. So this is where he is getting the explanation and description of how evil he was. Well, what happens with these kings when they are evil? God punishes them. That just goes over and over. Uh, If they repent, he relents. But if they don't repent, he carries out his punishment. And what is the punishment that's the big punishment in the book of Kings? Well, you're attacked by another nation, and many times they take captives. Now, that's already happened by Assyria, a partial captivity, but we're going to find out Rezin takes captives. We're going to find out that Pekah takes captives of the southern kingdom. So none of them are doing what is right before the Lord. And now we come into Rezin and Pekah's war on Judah. Now we're also going to find out why. Why are they warring against Judah? Well, because of the sin of Ahaz. The sin of Ahaz and God is bringing this about. So look at verse uh, 5 here. We're still in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 5. And it says, Wherefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Aram. And they defeated him. And I'm just going to stop there. Notice where it begins with wherefore. In other words, as a result of Ahaz's sin, God is bringing judgment upon him through the hand of the Aramean king and through the hand of the northern kingdom. But yet, there's still going to be a prophecy. There's going to be a promise to Ahaz. We haven't gotten there yet. 
but it's just amazing as we see God who is able to do all these events at once. He's able to discipline and punish while at the same time encourage, while at the same time give a prophecy of the Messiah. What a great God we serve. And it's all coming together. It's all coming together. So it says, wherefore the Lord is God delivered him into the hand of the king of Aram. And that would also be uh, Pekah. We're going to see that as well. And it says, and they defeated him and carried away from him a great number of captives and brought them to Damascus, capital city. And he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, Pekah, Israel. And of course, when we see Israel and kings, it's talking about the northern kingdom, who inflicted him with heavy casualties. So let's just quickly go through some of this. Well, first of all, with resin. So we see that divine punishment, the divine hand, let Ahaz fall into the hands of resin. And it says he was defeated and a great number of captives were taken. So way back in Deuteronomy 28, if you remember talking about the the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience under the law now. So you really wouldn't go to Deuteronomy 28 and apply this to us as believers. We truly are in the age of grace. Now, that's not to say we would never be disciplined by the Lord or even punished if it, for that matter. But here's one of the consequences of disobedience. When they disobey, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. In other words, they would be forced to do that. You shall become a horror, a proverb and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. The people will taunt them. And, and also God will be taunted. Your God is obviously not as strong as our God. And that Israel is going to say within his heart, yes, he is. Yes, he is. While they're in captivity. So it doesn't have to be the, the great captivity of the Assyrians, although we've already see, have seen that begin. But any kind of captivity, anytime a nation comes in, uh, they take the spoil, they take captives, and it, it, the, the, uh, the, the number here is pretty astronomical. Uh, we, we see it says a great number has been brought. Now, what about, what about Pekah? He comes with resin, and he comes against them. As we already read there in verse 5, um, it says, uh, He was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who inflicted him with heavy casualties. They killed a lot of their brethren. They are brothers. They're Israelites. Look at verse 6. For Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, slew in Judah 120,000 in one day. All valiant men. So their warriors, the southern kingdom's warriors, were killed. Why? Because they had forsaken the Lord God of 
their fathers. So it's not by the strength of the horse or the strength of military. It's the strength of the Lord. And we all need to be walking with the Lord um, to have communion with him, to, to be able to be used by him, to have the joy of the Lord, and so that we aren't disciplined. But in, under the Old Testament covenant, I'm telling you, they had a target on their back when they walked away to serve these other gods. And here, even the valiant men, these are the mighty men, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're trained warriors and very good at it. 120 of 120,000 of them died in one day because they had forsaken the Lord. And then verse 7 is going to talk about an interesting guy. His name is Zichri. And it says, And Zichri, a mighty man of Ephraim, just north of the border of the southern kingdom, slew Maaseah, the king's son. Ahaz lost his son. And Azricam, the ruler of the house. So he was an important guy. And Elkanah, second to the king. So there were a lot of important casualties. And the king's son was killed. Uh, then again, is it, here we have the irony. Did, did it even matter? Because Ahaz himself was sacrificing his, his own son. So maybe it did matter. But evidently, this was a prized son. And this was a son that was slain in the discipline. And then look at verse 8. It says, The sons of Israel, that's Pekah, carried away captive of their brethren 200,000. You can understand why Rezin took captives, but not the northern kingdom. They took 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and they took also a great deal of spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria, the capital of Israel. Well, at this point, the Lord, the Lord has enough of them, too. And the Lord has a plan with Ahaz and the southern kingdom. The Lord is not going to allow the southern kingdom to be destroyed yet. And we find out that there's a prophet that stands up, and his name is Oded, not Obed, but Oded. And he's sort of an unknown prophet other than the fact that it gives us his name. We find that in verse 9. And so now comes this prophet and he's going to go to Pekah and the army of the, the northern kingdom. It says, but a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded. And he went out to meet the army which came to Samaria and said to them, behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he has delivered them into your hand. And you have slain them in a rage, which has even reached heaven. So they went overboard. We've seen that happen with the kings. Verse 10. Now you are proposing to subjugate for yourselves the people of Judah and Jerusalem for male and female slaves. Surely, do you not have transgressions of your own against the Lord your God? In other words, aren't you sinful enough that you don't have to do this and sin again? Sin against the Lord and sin against the Lord's people? 
verse 11. Now, therefore, listen. Listen to me and return the captives whom you've captured from your brothers. For the burning anger of the Lord is against you. Well, you kind of wonder what good would that prophet do by telling the northern kingdom the Lord's mad at you when they serve all these other gods, including the golden calf. But watch what happened. Verse 12. Then some of the heads of the sons of Ephraim, Azariah, the son of Johanan, Berechiah, the son of Meshilamoth, Jehizkiah, the son of Shalom, and Amasa, the son of Hadlai, arose against those who were coming from the battle. So the prophet got through to them, and they're going to meet the army with all of these captives. And they said to them, you must not bring the captives in here, for you are proposing to bring upon, upon us the guilt against the Lord, adding to our sins and our guilt, for our guilt is great, so that his burning anger is against Israel. So watch what happens. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the officers and all the assembly. Virtually they let them go. Then the men who were designated by name arose, took the captives, and they clothed all their naked ones from the spoil, and they gave them clothes and sandals, fed them, gave them drink, anointed them with oil, led all their feeble ones on donkeys, and brought them to Jericho, the city of palm trees, to their brothers, and then they returned to Samaria. This is incredible. And you almost have, once again, this idea of irony where the godless northern kingdom shows mercy and obedience to the Lord, which King Ahaz would not do, including pass his children through the fire of Melech. Now, uh, I just want to uh, introduce Isaiah's prophecy, and we'll pick this up next week. So if you would, turn with me to the book of Isaiah. And you know what? This is exciting. This is Bible study. This is what we ought to do as a Bible church, Bible study. And in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So this is why this is coming out now. It's in that context. And then I'd like you to turn to chapter 7. In chapter 7, and of course, verse 14, and we're talking about Isaiah here, Isaiah 7, 14 is going to be that prophecy. It's going to be a sign to Ahaz, but there's going to be a double fulfillment with the sign to identify the Messiah. But in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Now it came about in the days of who? Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of 
Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. So they had heavy casualties, took many into captivity, but they did not conquer it. God was not going to allow that to happen. When it was reported to the house of David, saying the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz. Now this is this godless king who didn't do right in the Lord and did worse than these other kings. And here's going to be some encouragement, not necessarily for him, but because he happens to be the king of the southern kingdom of Jerusalem, God is going to spare Jerusalem for the sake of David. Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, take care and be calm and have no fear. And do not be faint-hearted because of these two, now he's talking about resin and Pekka, these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. So he's going to tell him not to fear. They are not going to be destroyed. Then he's going to say, ask for a sign. Ahaz doesn't ask for a sign. So God says, I will give you a sign. And it leads up to Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So next week, I'd like to take a look at this and see how, how can this be fulfilled in the days of Ahaz. Well, obviously, through the birth of natural means. But how can it be fulfilled then in Matthew of the birth of Jesus? the double fulfillment of a prophecy of a birth through supernatural means. And we'll talk about the words, and we'll talk about the word virgin, and we'll show that especially in Matthew, it's talking about one who never knew a man, the technical term for a virgin. We'll pick this up next week to talk about that, but it's just so exciting to see all these things come together. Which leads me to really just the three observations and applications. Number one, the continuity of scripture. Number two, the spiritual weakness of sin. And number three, the sovereignty of our God. First of all, the continuity of scripture. We have numerous writers of scripture, but we know that there's one divine author of scripture. Second Peter chapter 1, 20 and 21 says this, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's why there's continuity here. That's why it all fits together. That's why it fits together with the Old Testament and the Kings and Isaiah and the prophecy and the prophecy that was there at the time of Christ's birth and it was another author, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that talked about the virgin birth. So 
it's one author. And, and it, you know, over the years, you, you just get such confidence in the scriptures, don't you? You know, maybe as a new believer and somebody may have come up to you sometime and given you some, oh, some things that you've never heard, saying that the Bible's not true and it's just written by men and you hear all these things. Well, it may, may cause you to, to uh, shudder a little bit when you were a young Christian, but as you grow, as you get those answers answered, those questions answered, you, you begin to see more and more places that you don't expect to see it in the scriptures showing the foundation and the veracity of scripture, the continuity of it. I just get excited about that. Secondly, the spiritual weakness of sin. Now, not only did Ahaz fall under the, the Old Testament covenant, Deuteronomy 28, but there was spiritual weakness there that led him up to that. Now, we think about believers, we're not under Deuteronomy 28, but sin can make believers spiritually weak, right? I mean, if you're sinning all the time, habitually sinning, you're certainly not spiritually strong. So sin never makes a believer stronger or freer. If, if, you, come, if you see someone come out of a situation and they come out, more on fire for the Lord now than they were. It wasn't because they sinned. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm drinking so that I could tell my kids all the horrors of drinking. No, no, it doesn't work that way. But what makes them come out of it is the Lord. We have a gracious Lord. But it weakens us and takes us captive as believers until we repent and avail ourselves of the Lord's power. And then the sovereignty of God, you got to be excited about that. Only God could sovereignly have numerous events going on at once and yet prophesy the coming of the Messiah and his identification. Only God could both punish and bless his people and encourage them at the same time. But then only God could offer his son as a sacrifice for sin the wrath of God coming upon his son so that believers could have forgiveness and eternal life. What a great God we serve. Father, we thank you for what we see here in the book of 2 Kings. Thank you for the continuity and bringing these contexts together, Lord. We ask you now, Lord, that you would teach us, you would encourage us of the veracity of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture. We pray, Father, that we will be strong and not sin and not be spiritually weak. And Father, we pray that we'll not only praise you for your sovereignty, but live by your sovereignty. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.